pray. To you, Heavenly Father, we just uh, take a moment to lean in and listen in uh, and incline our ears and our hearts towards you, asking that you would speak to us in this time. Um, Speak to us through your Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, and just um, enlighten our hearts and our minds, open our eyes and our ears for what you have for us today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, uh, if today is your first time at Spry Church, or maybe your first time here in a while, you picked a good day to come because it is a beginning of a new series, and uh, we're calling this series Songs from the Soul. And this series is about some of the spiritual songs that you and I know and have probably heard for a long time, uh, and that as a result have been a part of our faith journey in some form or another. And so each of us, as we think back over our lives, could probably pinpoint a few songs that stand out that maybe were uh, formational for us or really meant a lot to us in one particular time, Um, a song from a certain era in your walk with Jesus. Uh, About six months ago, I was moving my stuff into the office at uh, the house that Becky and I moved into about a year ago. And I was going through some old boxes that had actually been in my parents' basement for quite a while. And uh, as I was going through those boxes, I found some CDs that I hadn't seen in forever. And so I had no idea what was on them. So I popped them into the CD player and just sort of wanted to figure it out. And as the, the music came on, what I realized was, was that they were CDs that I had burnt back during my early days of college, um, which happened to also coincide with... Um, the first time that I really started going to church regularly. And so I listened to all these songs that I hadn't heard in like a decade, which was kind of cool. And as I listened to them, I had two thoughts. My first one was, wow, you had bad taste in music. (laughs) Because I was like, I can't believe I like some of this stuff. But the second thought was, was, oh my gosh, like I remember this song, right? Some of you have probably had that experience where you haven't heard a song in a long time and it comes back to you and you remember, right, what you were feeling and what you were thinking, maybe what you were going through in that particular time as you listened to it. And so you probably have those songs of faith as well. And they take you back, right, to, to a good time or a happy time, maybe to a time of grief or a time of pain, Uh, Maybe a time of great faith where you kind of stepped into a new thing with God, or maybe a time of great doubt, right, where a song kind of helped propel you through a time where your faith wasn't that strong. And you remember those, and those songs stick with you. One of those classic hymns that have stuck with a lot of people over a long period of time is the song, It Is Well. How many of you grew up singing the hymn, It Is Well? It is well with my soul, right? So a lot of you, uh, most of us that grew up in church, probably know the song. And if you grew up in church, you might also know the story that goes with the song. Um, But um, my guess is also a lot of us probably don't. I know I didn't know the story until I actually started researching for this particular sermon. And I said to Becky, I said, like, have you heard this? And she said, yeah, I think I probably heard that story like a hundred times growing up in church. So if you're one of those people, count this as number 101. Um, So the, the song It Is Well was written by a guy named Horatio Spafford. And um, that's a picture of Horatio there. And a little background on him, he was a lawyer uh, in the city of Chicago. And he was a really successful guy. He made a lot of money and became also a real estate investor in the city of Chicago back in the mid to late 1800s. And so uh, he was, his life was going along fine. He was married. He had five children until his life kind of took a hard left turn in 1871. 
The first thing that happened in the year 1871 was that his two-year-old son uh, caught pneumonia and subsequently died. And so you can imagine, right, the pain and the grief that he was experiencing at losing his son, but that was only the first of a few hits that would come his way. Later that year in 1871, uh, the Chicago fire occurred, and the Chicago fire killed about 300 people. Uh, it burned a city of, or a, a part of Chicago that was about three miles by three miles. And so you can imagine drawing a box around Dallas Town and Red Lion and all the space in between, and that's about a three mile by three mile radius. And so you're talking about a huge, huge piece of Chicago. Uh, it left more than 100,000 people homeless. What it did for Horatio was it actually uh, damaged a lot of his real estate interests, and so he lost a lot of money in the fire, and then the economic downturn after the fire, because not much business was happening, also hit his pocketbook pretty hard. So in one year, he lost most of his economic interests along with his only son. So he and his family decided that after this crazy year, they wanted to take a vacation, get away from it all, and take some time to themselves. And, those, and so they decided that they were going to go to Europe. Now, some business was keeping Horatio back in Chicago, and so he put his wife and his four daughters on a boat to Europe, and he said, I'll catch up with you, I'll be there in just a couple of days. So his wife and his four daughters got on this boat and they started to sail to Europe, when along the way, another boat collided with theirs. And when it did, it snapped the boat in half, kind of like the Titanic. The whole boat sank in less than 12 minutes, which is really fast. And in the accident, 226 of the 310 passengers died, including all four of Horatio's daughters. Now, his wife, Anna, uh, was pulled from the water, unconscious, floating on a piece of wreckage. And for nine days, uh, Horatio Spafford had no idea what had happened to his family until finally his wife arrived in Europe, having been rescued, and she sent him the very short telegraph, saved alone, what do I do? And so immediately, uh, Horatio left Chicago and rushed to his wife, and on his way across the ocean, he actually crossed a point very close to where his wife and daughter's ship had been hit. And the captain of the ship knew the story, knew what Horatio was going through, so he actually called him to the deck of the boat and said, this is about the area where your wife's ship went down. And on that spot, Horatio grabbed uh, a piece of paper and penned these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to know, it is well, it is well with my soul. And he wrote the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And since writing those words, right, those words have been sung millions and millions of times by Christians all across the last century and a half. And in talking about this song, you know, there's one obvious direction that we could go to and, and talk about, you know, how in a situation like this, right, in the middle of the most tragic point of someone's life, in the middle of this deep, deep sorrow, how could you write words like that at a time like this, right? How do you have a faith that runs that deep that you could say on the heels of losing all of your children in the span of one year, how could you say it is well? And we're going to talk about that in a few minutes, but before we get there, I actually want to take a step back from that question. 
Because I think that there's also a kind of an intermediate step that we need to take before we get there, before we can talk about what was happening in Horatio Spafford's soul at that moment. And that intermediate step is to ask ourselves the question, are we in this present moment even aware of what's happening in our souls? Right? Are you and I even really listening to what is happening in here? On a regular basis because Spafford at this moment on the ship right was listening to his soul so intently and was so deeply aware of what was happening within him that he could make this connection between his faith and the assurance he had in Jesus right and the deep peace that he felt at that moment but I look around the world and I look even at my own life and I think you know that most of us don't really take the time to truly pay attention to the state of our souls, to truly pay attention to what is happening in the depths of who we are. In the New Testament, um, the word for soul is the word suke, and this word is used to describe all kinds of things in the New Testament. Um, it's related to the concept of the breath of life, so this, this life force that kind of exists inside all of us, and as I said, breath of life, some of you might have thought of Genesis chapter 2, right, and where God takes the clay and, and the dirt and breathes life into it to create humanity. Um, the New Testament uses that word to describe our deepest feelings and desires and affections. Um, the soul is that thing that is in union with our bodies. It's not our bodies, it's separate from our bodies, but it's in union with our bodies and it really is what makes us us, right? It's, it's the deepest part of who we are. It's, it's our innermost being. And most of us are really never taught, right, to take the time to truly check up on how our souls are doing, right? We're taught to listen to a thousand different things in life. We listen to each other. We're told to listen to our bodies and how we're feeling. Um, on a regular basis, we listen to podcasts and TV and music. We listen to pastors and teachers and we listen to comments on Instagram and Facebook or we listen to our phones ding all the time as we get text messages and emails. We listen to our biggest cheerleaders, and we listen, listen to our harshest critics, and we take in all that information and all that noise, day after day after day. But when really was the last time we stopped just in silence for 30 seconds, right, to listen intently and just do a status check on what's happening in here? And not only that, but to bring whatever's happening in here into God's presence, um, there's a book called Ordering Your Private World by an author named Gordon McDonald, and, and he says that each of us have an inner world and an outer world, okay, an inner world and an outer world, and maybe you'll resonate with this idea. Uh, I think it's definitely true for me, maybe you've experienced this, that we all have this outer world, right, that um, is what people see. So it's how we look and how we present ourselves. Uh, it's, it's what we drive and what we wear and what we own. It's how we act in public. It's, it's our perception, right? How other people perceive us. But we also have this inner world, this piece of us that no one sees, that really only you and I know what is happening in here. Uh, and it's much more spiritual in nature, right? It's the part of us that, um, that tells us if we're aligned or maybe misaligned with God. In this particular moment. It's the part of us that is connected to God and close to God or maybe is alienated from God. It's where our values and our morality 
and our true priorities are really rooted deep within us in our soul. And the truth is, is that most of us are taught how to take care of our outer world much earlier and much better than we are how to take care of our inner world. That's the nature of social media, right? I mean, we talked about this uh, idea a few months ago, that when you look at Facebook or you look at Instagram or Snapchat or whatever it is, they have a tendency to make us feel insecure. Because what you're looking at when you see that is other people's highlight reels, right? And so you know, when you woke up this morning, what you looked like in the mirror, and it wasn't pretty, what your breath smelled like, probably wasn't that great, um, that your kid threw up in his crib overnight, or the dog had diarrhea and you had to clean that up first thing in the morning, and you know all of the ugly parts of your life and the things you deal with and experience and how you feel on a day-to-day basis. And when you look at social media, you don't see those parts of everybody else's life. You only see the highlights of everybody else's life. And so what you do is you start comparing your lowlights to their highlights and you start saying, wow, my life is not nearly as good as, as theirs. And so it makes us feel in the deepest parts of who we are kind of inadequate. And so we all learn this skill of, of cultivating this outward world that, is, that looks strong and looks healthy and looks like it's going well. And what happens as we learn to cultivate that is we neglect to cultivate the inner world, right? This, this piece of us that is much deeper than what the world perceives. Or the other option is that we might have a a small awareness of what's happening inside of us, but we don't like it, right? So there's something about it that makes us uncomfortable. And so we know if we really sat down and listened to what's happening in our spirit, we wouldn't really like what we find. And it would make us uncomfortable and it make us maybe face some things that we don't want to face. And so what we do in that case is we use the outer world, right, to distract from the inner world. We feel this kind of gnawing in our chest, like, hey, something's going on. We need to talk about this. Like, let's address this. But instead of doing that, you just use the outside world to drown out the voice that's inside. Uh, So Scott Harrison is an interesting guy. Um, He has a really interesting story. When he was four, uh, his mother nearly died of carbon monoxide poisoning. And while she didn't die, she remained incredibly sick for the rest of his childhood. And so he spent the rest of his youth, from the time that he was four years old, caring for his mom every single day. And what that experience did for him was it started to create these deep questions within his soul. Questions about God and questions about justice and suffering and why his mom and why was he chosen at his age to be in that caretaker role. And so not wanting to really listen to those uncomfortable questions, his soul was, uh, was asking him, he took this path of using the outer world to drown out the voice of the inner world. And I'll let him tell you in this video uh, a little bit of what that looked like for him. So I grew up as an only child in a caregiver role, doing the cooking, doing the cleaning, taking care of mom, playing piano in church. Later, I, I joined the worship band. And I was that good Christian kid that didn't smoke, didn't have sex, didn't you know, uh, swear, uh, I didn't drink, I didn't try drugs. I played by the rules for 18 years. <laughs> and then at 18, you know, I had one of these moments. Now it's my turn. Time to look out for number one. 
all these rules, you know? I'm missing out on the fun. So I joined a band. I grew my hair down to my shoulders, which was a terrible idea. I moved to New York City in search of rock and roll fame. This lasted about a month. Our band immediately broke up because we hated each other. (laughs) But I learned that if you were seeking rebellion, there was a way to do it in style. And there was actually a job called a nightclub promoter where you could get paid to drink alcohol for free. If you could get the right people inside the right nightclubs, you could charge them astronomical amounts for liquor. People would pay $20 for a cocktail. They'd spend $500 on a bottle of champagne that costs 40. So for the next 10 years, I climbed up New York City's social you know, nightlife ladder. I was the guy behind the velvet rope and the one-way glass deciding who got in and who got out. Here's a picture of my life exactly 10 years later. I'm in a VIP room, and what is so sad about this photo is that the thing I think is important in this moment is pretentiously craning my wrist so that some club photographer I've never met notices I'm wearing a Rolex. This is somewhere around midnight. If you would have met me five or six hours later at some disgusting after hours, it was a much less pretty story. Go to dinner at 10, the club at 12, after hours at 5, often to bed at 12 or 1 the next day. And as you can imagine, a decade in nightlife, I'd picked up every vice that would come with the territory, short of heroin. Smoked two packs of cigarettes for 10 years. I had a gambling problem, a pornography problem, a strip club problem, a cocaine, an ecstasy, marijuana problem. And I'd come so far from the spirituality, the morality, my heritage, My poor parents, can you imagine for these 10 years? They had little old ladies at their church, you know, down on their knees wearing holes in the carpets for their prodigal son. So his story uh, eventually comes around and he re-engages with his faith. Uh, He says that he dedicated his life to being the opposite of what he was for that decade. Uh, He actually uh, now is the CEO of an organization called Charity Water um, that brings clean water to people all around the world that don't have access to it. But I listen to his story, right? And I wonder how many of us are living some form, maybe not to that extreme, maybe not quite that radical, but are living some form of that life right now. Now, York County is not New York City, right? There aren't uh, as many distractions, but there are still plenty of ways, whether it's in public or in private, to distract ourselves from the voice that is speaking within us. Matthew, uh, in his gospel, tells us about an interaction that Jesus had with his disciples in Matthew 16. And uh, at this point, Jesus is pretty far into his ministry, so he starts telling his disciples what's going to happen next. And he says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be arrested and executed at the hands of the Pharisees and the Romans, and then I'm going to be raised to life. And Peter, as he hears Jesus start talking about, like, I'm going to be arrested, and I'm going to be beaten, and I'm going to be executed, gets angry, right, because he can't fathom that that would happen to Jesus, who he believes to be the Messiah. And so what happens is Peter actually takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. Now, I don't know who you think you are, right, to to want to rebuke Jesus of all people, but Peter was that angry that he takes him aside and he says, basically, listen, stop. Like, stop talking this way because this will never, ever happen to you. We will make sure that it doesn't. 
And Jesus comes back at Peter, and he says the words, he says, get behind me, Satan, right? He calls him Satan, and he says, you're a stumbling block to me because you don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. And then he closes it by saying this, he says, what good will it be for someone to gain the world yet forfeit their soul? What good would it be for someone to gain the world, yet lose, forfeit their soul? And I don't know about you, but I know growing up, I would hear this verse, and I would think about a moment, right? That there would be a moment that I would have where I would have to choose between wealth and money and stuff and Jesus, and that hopefully in that moment, I would make the right choice. But the older that I get and the more experience that I have, the more I'm convinced that what Jesus is talking about here isn't just a moment in time, but it's actually a lot more subtle than that. That rather than lose our soul on a single choice or even just a series of choices, it's way more likely that your soul and my soul will gradually just kind of slip away from us and slip away from God over time through neglect because we ignore it, because we don't take the time to listen to it, and we don't hand, hand the joys and the concerns and the fears over to God. And then one day we go to call on our soul in some form or another, and we realize just how much of us internally has eroded away and how estranged we feel, right, and disconnected we feel from our own spirit. We've gained the world, right? We've gained the outer world that looks like it's fine and put together and might even be envious to other people, but we've lost our soul, this piece of us that was most fully connected to God. How many of you are uh, familiar with sinkholes? You know what a sinkhole is? Yeah. Um, So Central PA is pretty famous for sinkholes. I used to live in Palmyra, uh, where there are a lot of sinkholes every year. This is one from last summer, uh, actually in the outlets in Lancaster. You see some people were filing some insurance claims that week um, as the sinkhole opened under their cars. But a sinkhole occurs because there's water running underground that eats away at whatever is underneath of it. Right, and so, so you have the ground level and then the water is running and in some places, um, like in central PA, there's a lot of limestone underneath the surface and limestone is very soft and it's water soluble and so what happens when you get rushing water, especially after floods, that kind of thing, um, is this limestone that gets eaten away and then what's underneath can't support the weight of what's on top and it goes Right? So it happens a lot under structures, roads and parking lots, because there's a lot of weight there. Uh, it can even happen under homes sometimes, where they're swallowed up. So think of that when you go to sleep tonight and lay your head on the pillow. <laughs> but sinkholes form because what's underneath can't support the weight of what's on top of it. And what happens when we allow our inner world, our souls, to erode by not caring for them, by not taking the time to lean into God with them, What happens is we can pull off the outer world for a while, and we can make it look like everything is fine for a while, but eventually the weight of what we've built out there, our image, and what people think of us, and the perception that we want to build, eventually it all becomes too heavy to be supported by what's in here, and we crumble. 
And we see it time and time again, right, with celebrities and with entertainers and people that are in the spotlight. People break because of the pressure they're under in public because what they've built underneath can't hold up to the weight that's what's on top of them. And the same thing happens to us. We either burn out. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're close to burning out. We go and do something stupid, like gamble something away or have an affair because we're frustrated. Or we cut and run and just say, I'm done. We run away. And we try to start over because we can't support the weight of what we've built in the outer world. And so like a sinkhole, this whole facade we've taken years or maybe even decades to build just collapses in on us. And this is the story for us over and over and over again when we don't listen to our soul and we don't cultivate that inner world. And that actually brings us back then uh, to Horatio Spafford. Because you can imagine, right, what his reaction would have been if he weren't already cultivating this inner world. If he didn't have an inner world that was leaning on God, that was in relationship with Christ, right, when that accident happened, if he didn't have anything undergirding the outer world, then his response would have been far, far different, right? If he wasn't connected with his soul, then his whole outer world would have collapsed and he would have been gone with it, right? His wealth was gone, his possessions were destroyed, his kids were taken from him, and so it all would have caved in. But what he had instead was a soul that was sure in its place with God, which he could hear very clearly in those moments, even in the middle of grief and sadness, and so his inner world was strong enough to hold him together even when his outer world fell down. If we go back to the words of the hymn real quick, we don't have to look very far to see what it was that kept his inner world together. He writes, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come. And just real quick, buffet doesn't mean that Satan was at like Old Country Buffet or, or Shady Maple. Buffet means in Old English to strike, okay? So this is, though Satan should strike and trials should come. Let this blessed assurance control. So in other words, let what I'm about to say be what controls my life. That Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I shall bear it no more. There we go. I shall bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. In other words, he's talking about this thing, right, that kept his inner world knit together even, around, even while his outer world was crumbling. And that thing was his relationship with Christ. In a relationship, or in a, in a letter he wrote, rather, to a family member, he said, um, on Thursday last, we passed over the spot where she went down. So he's talking about this experience of, of being where the ship went down. Um, and the waters there were three miles deep. But I do not think of our dear ones there. I don't, do not think of my daughters there. They are safe, folded, the dear lambs. And what he's saying is that I don't think of them at the bottom of the ocean. I think of them with God because that's where they are, right? They're not at the bottom of the water. They are with God. And so what he knew at the end of the day was that even though the outer world was crumbling and falling, his inner world, his soul, and even the souls of his daughters couldn't be touched by any outside force because they belonged to Jesus. In Ephesians 3, um, Paul writes this. He says, I pray that the Father 
may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with the power of his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And so what he's saying here, right, see the word the inner being, or the phrase the inner being, that you might be strengthened by the Holy Spirit in the inner being. And this is because the, the, eff- the essence of what it means to keep our inner world safe and strong and holding together is not only to just pause and listen, which is a great first step, and we talked about why that's important, but then to take the next step of praying that the Holy Spirit would strengthen our inner world by reminding us of the love that Christ has for that soul. You see, when we do this, we get the opposite of the sinkhole. The sinkhole happens because what's underneath is neglected, and then it collapses in. But when we pray for the Holy Spirit to strengthen our inner being, then Christ becomes the foundation for our soul, and we become reinforced underneath. So that way, whatever piles on top of us, whatever weights, whatever burdens we bear, we can hold up under the weight because we are undergirded by something way stronger than the weight of the world. And this feeling should be freeing for us because this means that the caring for our inner being, the caring for our inner selves is really very simple. All we need to do is stop, listen, and pray. We stop what we're doing for a moment. We listen to what our spirit is saying within us, whether it's good or bad, comfortable or uncomfortable. And we pray that the spirit would remind us, in light of whatever we're feeling, of the breadth and the length and the depth and the love of Christ. And so my encouragement for you would be to stop for a moment. Sometime today, after worship, on your way home, as you go home, Listen to your soul and ask the question, is it well? Is it well in here right now for you? Is it well? And if it isn't, ask why. And ask whether or not in this moment your soul is standing firm on the work of Christ or are you hollowed out just building an outer world? And if that's you, if you're someone whose soul is not well today, then I just want to close by praying over you The same prayer that Paul prayed over the church in Ephesus that we read a moment ago. I pray that according to the riches of his glory, the Father may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit. And that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and length, and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. God, this is my prayer for each and every person in this room today, that your spirit would strengthen them and bear witness to them, that they may put their faith in Christ and put their soul on firm foundation. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to pause and to listen, to Take a second to listen to what our souls are speaking to us. And Father, I ask that we would each 
follow after the one who cares for our soul, your son Jesus, who taught us as his disciples that when we pray, we should pray this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. And now as a way of responding to what God has spoken to us here today, we take a moment to sing that great hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Mm-hmm. 